Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, February 28th. What a weekend of pro tennis action. We were all treated to a weekend that saw five different ATP and WTA events come to a conclusion. Those events going to be the subject of today's podcast. In particular, got to break down the performance of Rafael Nadal. Somehow at age 35, he's off to the best start in a season in his career. You look for Rafa 16-0 through his first 16 matches. He cruises to the title in Acapulco. Straight set victories this weekend over now world number one Daniil Medvedev as well as Cam Nori in the finals. I want to lock in on those results in particular and talk about what has allowed Rafael Nadal to have this continued amount of success at this stage of his career. Somehow he finds ways to continue to get better, but of course, if you watch him closely enough, you can see those little improvements manifest themselves in each and every performance he puts out there on the court. Have to talk about Rafael Nadal's performance in Acapulco. Also talk about Cam Nori, who, after starting the season deceptively slow, has come out of the gates racing in this post-Australia stretch, and he looks in excellent form as he begins his title defense. Yes, title defense in Indian Wells. Of course, want to offer my other takeaways from Acapulco, not just our finalists, but of course, semi-finalists, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas. How did they look heading into the Sunshine Swing? Going to answer that question. For all of you listeners today, of course, also have to talk about the WTA 1000 level action that happened in Doha. Iga Sviantek earning the first 1000 level title of her career. She has looked excellent throughout the start of this 2022 season, making the semifinals at the Australian Open. Now this 1000 level title under her belt as well. What has allowed her to take another jump here to start the year? Want to explore that on today's show. Talk about another fantastic run from an Conteve, who has been so good since winning that Cleveland title right before last year's U.S. Open, of course. Talk about the other performers as well, Sakari, and I know Ostapenko made the semifinals. May not touch on her, given how much I talked about her last week, but plenty of fun action from the final weekend in the Middle East, and again, all of that action we watched with the, uh, the added perspective of the Sunshine Swing coming up, Indian Wells, Miami, right around the corner. Talk about how these results factor into the those projections moving forward. And then, you know, we still had other high-level action on the pro level, in particular at the tour level. You look, we had another ATP 500 and Andre Rublev. What a three-week swing it has been for him. Semifinals, then back-to-back titles. He's now 14-2 and to start this 2022 year. Is Andre Rublev back? That's something for us to discuss as well as the run of Yuri Vesely. Of course, we also had Sloane Stevens winning her seventh title. We had Pedro Martinez Portero, first ATP title for him over in Santiago. 
Plenty of fun action for us to discuss on today's show. And, of course, the reason we're able to do that day in out here at the Mini Break Podcast. And I want to be clear, we have not been going daily here over the past month. It's been busy times here for us at Cracked Rackets. I appreciate all of your patience, all of you who have stuck with us through those times as we try to keep you updated on what's happening across levels here in the tennis world. Of course, we've been particularly focused on the college tennis world of late. And, of course, if you're a college tennis fan, we have you covered here at Cracked Rackets. We're going to have Big Ten broadcasts every Sunday on our YouTube channel, SEC broadcasts every Friday on the SEC team websites. Moving forward throughout the college tennis season, we'll have our deciding point episodes as well live on our YouTube feed. We recap the women Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, recap the men 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursdays. We're going to have Big Ten and SEC-centric shows as well. Got you covered on all things college tennis. I'll get Colette Lewis on the show soon to talk about the latest developments. I know indie native Nishesh Basvaretti, who I have had the chance to see in person, has been on a tear on the ITF junior circuit. We'll talk about with that with Colette coming up. The point being... We're back on track here. We have reset. We are refocused. Sunshine Swing coming up. We know you Cracked Rackets fans are looking to us for coverage to let you know what's happening. We're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. That is my pledge to all of you. I will try not to kill Super Producer Daniel Westoff, but we will get back to the normal volume of content here at Cracked Rackets because that's what all of you listeners deserve for your continued support. That's what our Cracked Rackets Patreon members deserve for their continued support as well. And if you're intrigued and want to become a Patreon member, support our efforts here at Cracked Rackets. You can learn more by going to our website, crackedrackets.com. Of course, a shout out as always to the lifeblood of this mini break podcast, our friends over at Tennis Point. You all know the deal for the best equipment at the best prices. There's only one place to go. It's tennis-point.com. You use our promo code CR15 at checkout. You'll get 15% off all sale items free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. We are so immensely grateful for the continued support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said... Let's talk about another fantastic weekend of action at the tour level. We have to start with Rafael Nadal and the action we saw in Acapulco. And I will be honest, I'm always a bit, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but a bit hesitant to discuss players like Nadal, like Djokovic, like Roger Federer. Of course, Serena Williams falls into this category as well. That's because... I don't know how much new analysis there is left to offer on these players. If you are a tennis fan who listens to a daily podcast about the goings-on in the tennis world, you are likely as well aware of Rafael Nadal's strengths, his weaknesses, the perceptions about him as I am here on this end of the microphone. We have seen throughout Rafael Nadal's career, he ascended to the world number two ranking in what, 2005, 2006? He first became world number one about 14 years ago in August of 2008. The book is out on Rafael Nadal. The discipline he plays with, the rigorousness of that forehand, his ability to work you cross-court, cross-court, down the line, take that ball early on the rise, plus one forehand when he plays on the ad side, slice serve out wide, inside out forehand to the open court. On the do side, slice down the tee, inside out forehand behind you to set up the inside in forehand. We all know the Rafael Nadal patterns. We know when he plays Federer, he's going to hit that high loopy backhand down the line, do side to ad side to force Federer to hit a backhand. He's 
going to play Slice down the line to buy himself in some time against a right-handed opponent, get things back to the center of the court. We all understand. I don't want to say we all understand. That's not fair, and I know some of you tennis fans are on the newer side, but we have all seen Rafael Nadal execute Rafael Nadal's game style on court. So the question I now have and the question I think all of us have as tennis fans, tennis observers, whatever it is we want to categorize ourselves as, how does he continue to do it? How at age 35, when at this point of his career, we can visibly see the hair loss on the top of his head? I don't care how thickly he ties that bandana. You all know, much like me, he is lacking up top right now. And yet it doesn't matter. The level looks the same. Sure, does he recklessly and with casual abandonment track down the 35th ball in the rally and these ridiculous cross-court on the run gets as frequently as he did when he was maybe 18 years old or 23? years old or even 27 years old. No, not as frequently. He definitely plays more efficiently. But with that efficiency comes uh, better results in every other aspect of his game. And it starts with the first serve and the serve in general. Rafael Nadal has been broken 21 times in 44 sets played throughout the course of this season. Let me say that again. 21 times in 44 sets played in a season in which he has started 16-0 on the court. That's a hold percentage of 89.7 thus far this year. Now, Riley Opelka is holding 96% of the time, something crazy. So right now, he's number one, and Cressy's been excellent, and when we've seen Isner, he's held serve. It's still a very, very small sample size. There's no denying that. But when you square things up for, again, just the 2022 results right now, you look for Rafael Nadal in terms of hold percentage. He's fourth. And you're going to love this list. Isner's first right now, holding a ridiculous 96.7% of the time. Then it's Opelka, 96.2. I say you're going to love this. I love this. Jensen Brooksby, 92.2%. He's played four matches, according to the stats leaderboard, 92.2%. That's laughable. You look for Rafa, whose numbers from this week aren't included. He's at 98.8. He'll stay there after this week. He's currently fourth in hold percentage. That's remarkable. And then, of course, you can look at the fact that Rafael Nadal continues to be Rafael freaking Nadal in terms of his break percentage, his effectiveness as a returner. He's breaking serve right now. Ridiculous 32.8% of the time, which is good for third right now on the ATP Tour behind Djokovic and Diego Schwartzman, and hilariously is below Rafa's career average of break percentage in which he's at 33.5. The broader point being... He's still who he is as a returner, but he's become elite of the elite as a server. And you look for Rafa in his career. He's only eclipsed this 89.7 number to start the year two different times. He held 90.8% of the time in 2019. That was a season that saw him go 59-9 and overall. He also did it back in 2010 when he held 90.1% of the time, went 71-10 and overall that season. 2010, folks, Rafael Nadal. 24 years old in June of that year. Excuse me. This is a new version, though, of Rafael Nadal. He's not holding serve the same way 2010 Rafa did. There are similarities, certainly shades of similarity to 2019, 
But it's just his effectiveness as a servant volleyer now, as a plus one tennis player, his willingness to move forward. And of course, there's long been a trope that Rafael Nadal, oh, he's an underrated volleyer. He's way better at volleying than he gets credit for. And we have made fun of that trope consistently here at Cracked Rackets. Because obviously, you know, again, how can he continue to be underrated at volleying if everyone says he's underrated? Doesn't that make him properly rated as just a good volleyer, which he has always been? I think the answer to that question is yes. But we've seen those volleys now manifest themselves better. And whether it be in Daniel, against Daniil Medvedev, where, you know, how many times, whether it was the drop backhand, the backhand drop shot into that, you know, backhand corner when Daniil Medvedev is 13 feet behind the baseline hitting the return of serve, or for Rafa, how he's serving and volleying and just hitting the backhand volley to the open space, taking advantage of Daniil Medvedev's court position. How many times on that ad side was it serve out wide, take advantage of Medvedev's court position, backhand? Hand volley to the open court, forehand volley to the open court, even hit the kick out wide on the deuce to the Medvedev forehand, open forehand volley, which is how he set up the game point that ultimately got him that hold for 4-2 in that 20-minute, you know, 3-2 service game for Rafa in the second set against Medvedev. It's how he employs it all, tactically, just much smarter, and that helps him conserve his body and allows him in those moments to hit the ridiculous on the run passing shots, like he was able to come to uh, come up with to set up break opportunities against Cam Nori in the final. And again, throughout it all, what was he doing? He's holding serve as well. And you look in that final against Cam Nori, he breaks for one love, then he blinks, and Nori gets the break back for one all. Rafa gets that break right back, and Rafa's up a break, you know, a double break where, you know, ultimately now Rafa's in control of the match, and with how well he's serving, he can just take more chances, be aggressive, you pin yourself so far back behind the baseline because you know the heaviness of his ground strokes when he has his feet set, and now he gets to incorporate the drop shots, and now he has you from a court positioning standpoint, he gets to move forward and, you know, play down the line with the backhand, rip cross court to the open court, just be more aggressive, which, you know, a, a license for Rafa to be more aggressive, you might as well just go shake hands and say, I guess I'm not winning here today. That's how brutally efficient Rafael Nadal is. Again, he took advantage of Medvedev's court positioning, worked every angle, every shot in his tool book, is now more willing to move forward on these faster surfaces, earlier in points, has embraced a servant volley, you know, game style. He was 11-11 on breakpoint chances saved against Daniil Medvedev, against arguably the best non-Djokovic returner on the ATP Tour. He fought off all 11 breakpoint chances that he faced and you look for Rafa, what of course is most impressive, he didn't play from August 4th of last season to January 3rd of this year. He takes a full four months off, and what did those four months off do? He wins 16 consecutive matches. So, again, the heaviness with which he's hitting, you know, the second set he played against Tommy Paul, where Tommy threw all of his athleticism, every look in the book at Rafa, and Rafa was still able to come up with answers athletically, and just, again, the the physicality, the heaviness of his ball, keeping Medvedev in a defensive posi- position, punishing any look at a Daniel Medvedev second serve that he got. Then against Cam Nori, he was just in control from start to finish, and played like a front runner, which he has done so well in his career. And, you know, he won Acapulco for the first time at 18. He wins it now here at 35. He's both the youngest and oldest winner of the tournament's history. That epitomizes the success of Rafael Nadal. And again, I said it at the top. Did I offer any new analysis to say Rafael Nadal is excellent? We've known that about him now for the entirety of his career. But sometimes you just see displays that remind you this guy is of another planet 
This week in Acapulco was one of those times. Certainly, you felt like the atmosphere, the conditions with the ball flying and exploding through the court the way it did on those Acapulco courts, that's always going to benefit Rafa. But coming into the Sunshine Swing, he has yet to drop uh, a match this season. You look for Rafa in his career, and obviously he's played so many events over the years, but you look for him in Miami, at the Miami Masters, over the course of his career. It's an event where he's 40-12 and 12 overall. You look for him, though, in terms of finals at that event. For Rafa, he has made five finals in Miami, not since 2017, though. It's 0-5 in those five finals in Miami. That's one of the Masters. You know, that's an elusive one for Rafa. He has yet to capture. Is this the season that he does it? We'll find out, folks. We will find out. Certainly, he is playing as well as anyone, and it's hilarious that you look for Rafa now with this 16-0 run. Still number four, excuse me. Still number four. That's why you don't eat before podcasts, folks. Still number four in the rankings is the 35-year-old Rafael Nadal. And he's playing better than that level. I think if you ask anyone right now, yes, Medvedev has earned that number one ranking over the course of the last 52 weeks, but who is the best player in the world to start 2016? I think you're a fool if you answer anyone other than Rafael Nadal. But of course, that wasn't your only result in Acapulco. We should focus on some of the other highlights and, you know, again, that next wave because we all know what's coming with Rafa. And we have always had one eye towards the future here at Cracked Rackets. And certainly, you know, we have known Cam Norrie since the start. I was there when he visited Michigan on his recruiting trip, playing, going to play college tennis. He was one of the top juniors in the world, ultimately ends up at TCU. And what a Sunday it was last Sunday for TCU. Norrie wins a title in Del Rey, Alistair Gray former All-American for them, wins a title at the ITF level. They win the national indoor title on that Monday. What a weekend for the Horned Frogs. What a two-week stretch it was for Cam Norrie, who writes the ship. And, you know, I think three weeks in general, because you look for Norrie, at the start of his season, he starts out 0-4 at the start of the year. ATP Cup. Let's recap, though, who he played. Three-set loss to Taylor Fritz. I don't think that was a bad one, particularly given Fritz ultimately makes the second week in Australia. Straight set loss to Felix Ogier Aliassime. FAA has been one of the five best players here to start 2022. Straight set loss to Alex Virov. You could argue that's the worst loss he took given that straight set loss he took to, at the Australian Open first round to Sebi Korda. If you watch that match, that had everything to do with Sebastian Korda, who was just lights freaking out, played about as well as he has perhaps ever played in a tour-level match to earn that straight set victory. Again, that win had so much more to do with Korda than anything about Cam Nori. Studied the ship since then. Goes to the indoor courts in Rotterdam. Wins over Hashinov and Umber before a 5-6 and six loss to the eventual champion in FAA. Then goes to Delray Beach. Beats Korda in three, Tommy Paul, and ends the run of Riley Opelka in a 6-6 six and six match you know, a 6-6 six and six match that Cam Norrie did not face a break point in. 6-6 six and six victory to win the title in Delray. Now gets wins over Isner and Tsitsipas on his way to this run of the final in Acapulco. You look for him in particular against Tsitsipas. Just physically, he was up for the challenge. He was able to absorb the plus one ball of Tsitsipas. Hits that lefty slice out wide on the outside so effectively. 
Ferry Rafa-esque in his placement, in his execution to open up the plus one inside out ball, that backhand. Yes, the backswing is so condensed and you just feel like how is he going to generate any pace and yet his ability to absorb and redirect on that side and then generate depth with that ground stroke, even if it's not the heaviest ball, even if it does sit a bit and is flat, just the depth he can get on that wing and was going after his forehand against Tsitsipas inside out in particular. That ball, how well he disguised it, how lethal it's become. He's comfortable moving forward and, again, tried to move forward as frequently as he could against Rafa. Rafa just did such a good job of taking that away in Nori's service games. Cam Nori's playing the best tennis of his career, and you look for him, was number 12 coming into the week with the result. will stay at that career high of number 12, and again, with Indian Wells coming up, he's defending a title, and I'm not sure exactly how the point situation is going to work, but when you look for Nori here, has reset things, and you look at the numbers for him, hold percentage back up to where he wants it to be, 82.8, still not breaking serve at the rate he usually does for his career, 24.5. Right now, he's at 22, but I think that has to do with the level of competition. Again, you play servers like Fritz, FAA, Zverev, Korda in your first four matches of the season. That's going to hurt the break percentage. And then a match against Rafa, and he's played Opelka and Isner and Tsitsipas and Korda again. He's had a really rough stretch of matches from a scheduling perspective, from a you know opponent's strength of schedule. Um, and yet Nori's come out of this looking really, really good. Back up again to a new career high, uh, up to that career high, sustaining it. Number 12 makes the final of a 500 here. You know, those are the sort of results. Yeah, we saw that Indian Wells run to the title. And yeah, we saw finals from him in title runs, uh, title run in Los Cabos, but, you know, finals in San Diego and Queens Club in Lyon and Estoril. He's now getting over the hump in those, you know, he continues to get to the finals at the 250 level, but he's doing it now at the 500s, the 1000s as well. That is the telltale sign of a guy who belongs in the top 15 of the rankings. And Cam Nor at age 26, doesn't turn 27 till August, doesn't feel like he's going anywhere anytime soon. You look for Nori now, 61 and 28 over his last 52 weeks. I think most impressively during that stretch, he's 50 and 15, a 77% win percentage against opponents ranked outside the top 20. 31 and 6, an 84% win percentage against opponents ranked outside the top 50. And one of those outside the top 50 losses was a loss to Carlos Alcaraz. He's beating everyone he's supposed to beat. If you don't have the weapon to disrupt his rhythm and if you can't match his physical, well, first, if you can't match his physicality, you don't have a chance. But even if you can, if you don't have a weapon to disrupt his rhythm, he's just too consistent, too disciplined in his approach. Noor is playing really good ball. That's another good run to a final for him in Acapulco. And then for your top two seeds, you know, for Daniil Medvedev, I don't think he played uh, he didn't he just didn't play his best against Rafael Nadal and you know again first serves he looked excellent won 25% of his second serves though and only won 31% of his second serves against Nishioka Remember that run from Medvedev where he just stopped hitting the second serve and he just started going big on that ball, taking his chances, and it was indicative of an aggressive mindset, and he did that in sets three and four of that five-set thrilling final of the U.S. Open against Rafael Nadal, a final he ultimately lost, but what a comeback that was, his you know big announcement on the big stage. Where'd that Medvedev go? Where'd that recklessly aggressive and recklessly is the wrong word but where did that aggressive Medvedev in the big moments go down swinging that sort of effort mentality where did that go 
for Daniil Medvedev. I miss that guy. He's thinking too much right now. And of course, you ascend to world number one and you have a loss like you did up two sets to love and three opportunities to take a break lead in the third against Rafa. You're going to start thinking and reevaluating things. And again, long term, I thought Medvedev, you know, big picture, he played fine in Acapulco. But he didn't, again, he got a little tentative in the biggest moments. And for a while there that Medvedev had shooken that and he went down swinging and sometimes you get frustrated at him when he gets a little bit reckless but at least in those moments it disrupts the rhythm versus the certain death that is a floating second serve against Rafael Nadal and so you know he did double fault a bit he did try to start going after that second serve and it wasn't exactly working for him against Rafa but it's just it it was interesting to see you know especially on some of those that in that long 20 deuce game just you know how tentative he was with his return position against Rafa maybe step up on one of those try something different get a different look but you know just kept offering Rafa the same look over and over again and that's not Daniil Medvedev as you know consistent as he is he's a man who disrupts patterns and he struggled to do that against Rafa, but of course it's freaking Rafa. And you look for Medvedev still, his losses this season, Umber in his first match of the year, then Rafa and Rafa. He's doing just fine, you know, holding 88.3% of the time, break and serve 25.2, which is a little low for him, but still a top 10, 15 number on tour. He looks just fine to start this season. Going into a sunshine stretch, again, Indian Wells, Miami, he was okay last year. I think quarterfinals, right, in Miami. I'd like to see him win one of these events, really put a state, uh, you know, his stamp, a rubber stamp on that world number one ranking. In terms of Tsitsipas, you know, the break percentage has dipped for him this season after a career-high 25.5% last year where you could noticeably tell the backhand had gotten better, particularly when we were on the slower clay court surfaces. I mean, Nori found the patterns. He found the slice out wide on the ad with the lefty serve, found the slice tee on the deuce, was able to jam the body, was able to get Tsitsipas thinking to where he could hit his lefty inside out forehand to the Tsitsipas, you know, forehand side and catch Tsitsipas cheating over on that ad side of the court. But I thought Tsitsipas played fine. Six and six over Laszlo Jury was, wasn't his best result in Acapulco. But after that, you know, one and oh over J.J. Wolf, three and four over Marcos Giron, and then I thought he was solid against Cam Nori. One of three, you know, on break points. Nori got two breaks of serve. Nori, or Tsitsipas wasn't able to break Nori. It was a poor returning performance, but I thought he played pretty solid, and again, I think his level's pretty solid as well. Heading into uh, this, this, you know, he, he does seem healthy heading into the sunshine swing, and you look for him over these three weeks. Finals in Rotterdam, yeah, the tough loss to Civilian in Marseille uh, the week after that final in Rotterdam, but then semifinals here backs it up in Acapulco. He's in fine form as we enter the sunshine swing. Of course, you look at the quarterfinalists in Acapulco. Great result for Yoshihito Nishioka. Capitalizes on the confidence he built in, this, uh, in the Columbus-Cleveland Challenger swing, and again, just athletically, if, if you don't have an elite top 50 weapon his variety he's just going to kill you with you got to take advantage of the second serve obviously Medvedev was able to do that but Yoshi belongs in the top 100 and with this result he successfully gets back in it you look for Nishioka now in the live rankings he I don't want to say comfortable but number 96 he should get into the grand slams now if these next months go accordingly and certainly we'll get to play ATP 250 and ATP tour level matches 
Marco Scarone, great bounce back for him after a struggling Australia. Semifinals in Dallas, now quarterfinals here. Tommy Paul continues to play the best tennis of his career, and you look for both guys, Scarone and Tommy Paul. You look for Marco Scarone now. He's up to a new career high. Number 55 is that 28-year-old closing in on securing that ATP Tour pension. Tommy Paul now up to a new career high of number 38 is the 24-year-old. Here's what you love to hear if you're an American tennis fan. Yes, we're all excited about the next next gen, Brooksby, Nakashima, Korda, but Korda's at 39, Paul's at 38, Tiafo 31, Fritz 20, Opelka 17. The Americans are coming, folks. Good tournament. Oh, shout out Peter Gojewitz as well, who's knocked out by Cam Nori in the quarterfinals, but really fun event in Acapulco. Again, the story is Rafa, 16-0, and but the next gen, I thought they all played pretty well as well. But as the story continues to be, they just can't get by those pesky, pesky big three. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just... Just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With that in mind, let's switch gears. Talk about the action that happened in Doha. And of course, you know, again, first 1,000 level event of the year for the women. The draw as such, just absolutely stacked. And you look for Iga Svantec on her way to her first uh, WTA 1,000 level title beats Golubic in three sets in round one. That's a brutal first-round match. Victoria Golubic, top 50 now, one of the rising stars of last season. Then she gets an unseeded Kasatkina, who she beats 3-0. and Number one seed Arena Sabalenka in the quarterfinals, two and three victory. Number six seed Maria Sakri, top ten player in the world, four and three victory. Then number four seed Annette Conteve, who she gets in the final. You look for Iga Svantec, 6-2-6 love in the final. 6-2-6 love. She got better and better as the week progressed in Doha. And what's been particularly impressive for Svantec, and in my opinion, has allowed her to take that next step here to start the season, has been the growth on the forehand wing. You know, Sakari relentlessly tried to attack it in the semifinals. Svantec, uh, excuse me, Conteve tried to do the same thing on serve in the finals. Sabalenka tried to do the same thing in the quarterfinal. It didn't matter. Yeah, elite pace, elite, elite pace and depth. You're still going to disrupt the Svantec forehand. Guess what? Elite, elite pace and depth is going to disrupt anyone's forehand. But the Iga Svantec forehand is now not some just targetable thing that you can hit with pace to on the serve. Because if you leave a ball sitting now, Svantec makes you pay. And how comfortable she was ripping into that ball down the line and inside out and injecting pace into rallies. Not just waiting for a forehand, but in standard cross-court rallies, injecting pace against Conteve and Svantec. You know, simply put, she was just she was too good throughout the course of this tournament. Of course, she still absorbs, redirects, change directions, and injects pace on that backhand wing so well. She's still incredibly comfortable hitting the swinging volley out of the air, moving forward, closing at the net. She's still an extraordinarily springy athlete as well, can slide in and out of corners, great laterally, you know, can play defense but turn defense into offense. We'll get looks at two passing shots in the course of a rally with the first one the dip, the second one down the line or the lob, whatever it may be. Iga Svantec can do everything 
on a tennis court. And that's why it's not a shock to see her numbers continue to get better. But in particular, again, solving that forehand return of serve. Last year, she was top 10 club pretty much the entirety of the season. But then you saw, you know, again, that forehand start to break down during the grass court season and during that U.S. Open and, you know, against the best of the best opponents. And, you know, for her this year, she's come out roaring on the return of serve, breaking 49% of the time. That's obviously number one here to start the season, would be number one throughout the duration of last year as well. She's just, you know, it's target practice for her, much the same way it is for Yelena Ostapenko. And Shantek's always been excellent on the backhand return of serve. But, you know, again, physically what was so impressive was how difficult it was. You know, Sabalenka, when she was hitting winners, of course, she's going to hit winners against anyone. But just Fiontech was able to track enough of them down, ask enough questions of Sabalenka that she wasn't executing well enough to continue that relentless aggression. And then, yeah, when Sakari really connected with a first serve, really connected with a plus one forehand, she could dictate a little bit. And, you know, she came up with some outstanding outer third passing shots, dippers at Sviantec's feet as well. But everything was on Sviantec's terms. She was the one inside the baseline during those baseline rallies. And ditto against Annette Conteve in the final. Just, you know, outside some early turmoil. And yeah, there were a couple of deuce games in the start of that second set as well. But ultimately, Conteve could not do enough, generate enough pace to hurt Sviantec with... And now you look for Iga Sviantec since, you know, over these last 52 weeks, she's 40 and 16, 70% win percentage at the highest level. She deserves to be top 10 in the world. But you look for her since the tour resumed in August of 2020, 58 and 21 overall. It's a 73% win percentage. You look for her now against top, you know, against opponents ranked outside the top 50. She's 27 and 3. Her loss, you know, her last loss coming in Miami of last year. Against opponents outside the top 20, she's 48 and 11, 81% win percentage, elite of the elite against these sorts of players. Now, against top 20 opponents after this week, she's 11 and 10. You look for her against top 10 opponents after this week, she's 8 and 5. If that's not the profile of a player clearly on the rise, clearly, you know, mastering each level of the game continuously, I really don't know what is. And you just look for Iga, again, how well her game translates across surfaces. And we need to see it more on grass courts. But given her attacking game style, you just her athleticism, you feel like she's going to find a way to have success at some point through her career on grass courts. And just we've seen the success. She's a freaking French Open champion. And now to do this in on the hard courts in Doha, I mean, it's always worth remembering. She's still just 20 years old. Doesn't turn 21 till the end of May. To see the growth in Iga Sviantec's game, to see her figure out the forehand, to see her come to grips with her athleticism and use that as a way to channel her explosiveness into aggression on the court tactically. And just, again, she can do everything down the lines, cross courts, defense, offense, moving forward, the first serve. Yeah, the second serve still hangs from time to time, but you're going to say that about everyone. She's 20 years old and has such a complete game style, a well-deserved title. She continues to ascend her way amongst the elites uh, elite in women's tennis. And now Iga Sviantec up to a new career high of number four in the WTA rankings with this win in Doha. Who is your favorite outside of Ashley Barty entering the Sunshine Swing? Is it number world number two, Barbara Krejcikova? Certainly she'll be in the mix, but has she delivered a definitive victory this season? Probably not. Is it Arena Sabalenka? Too inconsistent? Definitely not. 
maybe world number five Conteve, but Svantec just beat her two and zero. And you know we haven't seen Bedosa of late. Maria, or we have, but she hasn't played great. Maria Sakari just got beaten by Iga Svantec, and you know Muguruza, Jabour, are they playing well enough? Maybe not. Ostapenko might be in the mix, but it's probably Barty one, and then Svantec two. And honest to God, that makes sense when you look. For Iga Sviantek, given the fact that here this season, her only losses on the year to Yelena Ostapenko, three sets, seven, six in the third in Dubai, Ostapenko goes on to win the title. Then she gets knocked out by Danielle Collins in the Australian Open semifinals, that, and Ashley Barty in the Adelaide semifinals. That's it this year. She's lost to Barty, Grand Slam champ, undefeated. Collins, Australian Open finalist. And Yelena Ostapenko, who won that event in Dubai and has been one of the five best players on the season. That's how good you have to be right now to beat Iga Svantec. And that is typically the mark of someone who has ascended amongst the elites in uh, professional tennis. Of course, you look at some of the other results. Annette Conteve just continues to roll and, you know, straight sets over Anaconia, three sets over Merton, straight sets over Jabour, straight sets over Yelena Ostapenko in the semifinals. Her ability to absorb, redirect, and just the physicality she brings. Again, such a complete skill set. She can inject pace into rallies, even if she's not the most comfortable doing it, but so good in the outer thirds of the court. Will beat you down the line when you least expect it. Will take that ball early on the rise. Comfortable moving forward, hitting the swinging volley. Continues to serve better and better. And you look at the numbers for her. Again, four consecutive years of growth from a hold percentage perspective. She's up to a career high 78.6 right now. That number uh, in a 16 match sample size would be good for second amongst WTA Tour players. She's breaking serve 39.6% of the time. That's an even better mark than she had throughout the course of last season, a little bit below her career high, but 2.6% above her career average. And again, a number that would be top 10 uh, on the WTA Tour. She's in the top 10 club to start this season. That's typically the mark of an elite player. And that's what uh, she can be when she plays her best tennis. And again, that 39.6 break percentage, actually, excuse me, that number good for 14th on the WTA, 16th, excuse me, on the WTA Tour, so a bit behind. Um, but, you know, again, she's serving at an elite rate and she's breaking serve at a borderline elite rate. She's playing really good ball still. And against the best of the best, again, you know, she didn't have enough natural pace shot in, shot out to disrupt the rhythm of Sviantec, but Sviantec played lights out. That result had more to do with Sviantec than it did Conteve. And look at the way Conteve disrupted the rhythm and got Ostapenko stretched to the outer thirds. And again, just to get to that final for Conteve, she had to go through Jabour, Mertens, Ostapenko, Konya. You look for Annette Conteve since Cleveland last year, 42-6, and 88% win percentage. That's just laughably good. And you look for her against opponents ranked outside the top 50, she's 16-0. and 0. Opponents ranked outside the top 20, she's 30-1, and 1, her one loss to Clara Tawson. You look for her against top 20 opponents now, she's 12-5, uh, 12-6 overall. She's 8-5 against the top 10. Again, from a profile perspective, it's Barty. And then it's a short list of players. Sviantec's probably on top of that list. Then you probably go the consistency of Conteve. Then you go Ostapenko after that. Those are your four best players by form heading into this sunshine swing. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Now, of course, again, there are a couple other players on the list. Ostapenko being on that short list. Maria Sakari. She looked pretty solid throughout the start of the season after a three-set loss to Rogers in Adelaide before the Australian Open fourth round where she loses to Pagula. Finals in St. Petersburg, three-set loss to Conteve now wins 
in straight sets, excuse me, over Ann Lee, Pagula, and Coco Goff before getting knocked out by Iga. Yeah, she's playing solid, but, you know, solid. A lot of players are playing solid, and this is something we explored with David Kane. There's a lot of good right now on the WTA Tour. Is there anything great? Ashley Barty, certainly. Iga Svantec ascends closer and closer to it, you know, every day. Annette Conteve is on the precipice of very, very good. She's, you know, out of great. She's probably very, very good right now. Ostapenko can be great, and this is, you know, her, the most consistent she's been over a six-month stretch, as we explored last season, uh, last week in her career. But who's the, who's great? Who's great? That's what the Sunshine Swing I'm really looking forward to seeing. Is it just Ashley Barty's world and we're all living with it? Or can one of these many challengers step up to knock her off the pedestal? Certainly, if you look at this Middle East swing, there are a couple of notable outliers. Ostapenko, Sviantek, among them, they were both excellent. This was a really fun Middle East swing, as they all have been. I mean, again, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Goff Sakari, Jabour Kantave, and Muguruza Ostapenko were your quarterfinals. It was always going to be fun after that. And guess what, folks? It turned out to be very, very fun. With all of that said, let's get into the ATP action now in Dubai. And, you know, what was so impressive in Dubai was it was the culmination of a three-week run for Andre Rublev. And, you know, three-week runs are usually in those month runs or when we establish someone who's, you know, a challenger level player making the jump to an ATP level or an ATP 250 guy making it to the top 50 consistently or vice versa. When you're talking level jumps, that's usually this sort of stretches how you measure it. I don't think we learned anything new about Andre Rublev through this three-week stretch, but it was a stark reminder that when he plays his best tennis, he is certainly amongst the elite of the elite on the ATP tour. Now, is he a tier one guy? I don't think so because, again, it's a bit one-dimensional. You know it's going to be relentless forehands, relentless serves, relentless aggression, just relentless energy on the court. But we saw the maximization of those traits from Andre Rublev over the past three weeks. And you look for Rublev now 14-2 and two overall in the year. He's just back to being the guy he was at his best in 2020. And, you know, at the start of 2021, you look for Rublev. He's holding serve 86.8% of the time. That's a career high. He's break and serve 27.6% of the time. That's a top 15 number, 2.5 above his career average from a break percentage perspective. He's just moving his feet proactively again, getting after the forehand and using it to move forward. Of course, we do, though, see improved ability on that backhand wing. Just not only is he more consistent, but the depth he's able to generate the action on that ball. He's more comfortable keeping opponents honest, pulling trigger down the line there, and just you know more comfortable as a volleyer continues to get better more fluid as a mover as well. Again, simply put, Andre Rublev is starting to play the best tennis of his career once again, and you look for him over this three-week stretch. Semifinals in Rotterdam. Three-set loss to eventual champion Felix Ogier-Aliassime. He then beats Felix in the Marseille final, wins the title here in Dubai. Three-set victories come from behind over Sun Wukwan in the round of 16. Mackie McDonald in the quarterfinals. Hubi Hurkats in what was a very fun semifinal match, and I do sometimes continue to think just for Hubi. You know, he is a guy who can do so many different things And, you know, again, he is so good moving forward, yet sometimes he's just so comfortable using his athleticism and sitting, you know, six, seven, eight, twelve feet behind the baseline, absorbing pace. Rublev made him pay for that court positioning, whether it was just, again, the patience he showed in waiting till he had the entire court open to hit his approach and move forward, excuse me, or just again— 
moving Hercot over inch by inch by inch. And then he returned serve so well against Yuri Vesely. Just absorbed the Vesely serve, got his return deep more than worrying about angle or anything else. Just, again, depth was the key, not allowing Vesely an easy plus one opportunity. You know, he goes up an early break in the second set. Vesely gets that break back, seemingly goes on a run. Nope. Rublev gets that break immediately back. They trade three breaks consecutively, but just like that, Rublev's up a set and a break, and he holds on to it. A three and four victory. And again, over a three-week stretch now, Andre Rublev played, you know, 13 matches. He goes 12 and one in a 13-match stretch. It's about as good as you can ask for, Rublev, who with this result now again comfortably re-solidifies his place in the top 10. Rublev up to number 6 in the world, one off his career high of number 5. Gets the win at the 250 and comes now into this sunshine swing in exceptional form. You look for Rublev 14-2 now, again to start the year, 58-24, 71% win percentage over his last 52 weeks. Andre started to run into form, and given he had COVID to start the season more than anything else, just good to see him healthy physically and, you know, mentally. He's starting to play his best tennis, and obviously with everything going on, you know, at the end of his semifinal match, he does take the risk, take the moment to write peace, not war, which obviously given his Russian heritage and everything going on in Russia, you know, between Russia and the Ukraine right now, him openly calling for peace, it's, it's a very courageous thing to to buck the Putin government who are in autocracy, who are all controlling of all things in Russia where Andrei Rublev's family is. And you could see his reservations about doing it again after the final and yet to take that courageous risk, stand in solidarity with those in Ukraine, call for peace. I don't know if you want to say it was quite the step of standing in solidarity with Ukraine, but any sort of bucking again from a Russian of the Putin government it's a courageous act, and credit to Rublev for taking that courageous step for doing as much. Uh, at the same time, again, by the way, obviously, always difficult to follow this tennis with something as serious as that happening in the world, and of course, we are continuing to think about that here at Cracked Rackets. It's nice to have that distraction, be able to dive into tennis for a little bit and you know, not worry about everything happening in the real world, and Andre Rublev has certainly helped with that distraction, this three-week run. He's playing some of his best ball, heading into the Sunshine Swing. What a run for Yuri Beshley, by the way, who makes you know his first final since 2020, captures the second title of his career, was playing primarily challenger-level events over the course of the last 52 weeks. But look, won a challenger in October, you know, goes down to that level to just find his form. And when he's serving right, can hang with anyone. And you look for him, wins 90% of his ser- first serves against the RBA, wins you know 82% of his first serves. And Shapovalov served for the match, up 5-4 in that third set. Vesely able to get that break back, stay alive, force a breaker, execute better in the breaker, play the plus one ball, play fearless tennis. You may forget the 28-year-old Yuri Vesely is a former world junior number one, has always had that sort of elite power ball striking ability now, again, can be a bit one-dimensional, and and Rublev did a great job of taking that first strike away from him, but talk about a much-needed run. Yuri Vesely now up to number 74 in the world. He was number 120 coming into the week, or excuse me, you look for Vesely, was number 123 coming into the week, now up to number 74. You're playing the Grand Slams this year, my friend. You're back in the ATP ball game, which at age 28, that stage of his career is really all that he can ask for. What a fantastic story. Credit to all the journalists covering the event who covered him so well. Talking about the difficulties he's been through over the past couple of years, but again, Credit to Rublev for disrupting that rhythm, but for Vesely, the results speak for themselves. He outplussed one Chilich, Popperin, you know, got Hattie Habib, the former Texas A&M All-American, and Qualies got 
RBA Djokovic and Chapo down the home stretch. Rublev just a little bit too good for him in the final, but again, back into the top 75, up to number 74, is Yuri Vashley. Uh, again, you look at some of the other results in Dubai. Chapo served for the matchup 5-4. Going to be incredibly disappointed, particularly given that was match 13 for Rublev in a three-week stretch. You just feel like, you know, Chapo had his chances, particularly, you know, in that you know, third set. He served for it 5-4 and just wasn't able to get over the finish line. Just too many errors for him in big moments. You know, certainly on the flip side, if you're Hoopy Hercots, third set, against Andre Rublev, you were right there. And, you know, again, when you're on your front foot and you're dictating and you do have the athleticism to hang with the weapons of a guy like Rublev, it just continues to be for Hercots. What is plan A? How does he make life easy for himself? Still a good semifinal result to get things kick-started for the defending Miami Open champion. And, again, he's going to have to defend that title here coming up in the next couple of weeks. Those were your three biggest events on the ATP and WTA Tour, but we did have a couple of other low-key events happening across the globe. Let's start with the WTA action in Guadalajara. Title number three, four, uh, seven, excuse me, for Sloan Stevens uh, in her career. It was a much-needed one. You just look for, uh, was it much-needed? I mean, she's clearly been on the comeback trail over the last 52 weeks, but you look for Stevens. It was her first final since 2018. First final since 2018. She gets a title in her first match back. You know, 7-3 and three now in the 10 WTA final she played. It was much needed for Sloane Stevens. A reminder that, you know, again, at age 28 years old, she's still got plenty left in the tank for Stevens. And, you know, you now look for her over her last 52 weeks after a 2019 that saw her, you know, again, the ceiling, you know, the floor kind of fell out from beneath her at the end of the year. She goes into the home stretch losing, you know, eight of 12 matches to end the year and, you know, 10 of 14 matches overall. And you look for her in 2020, she goes four and 11 overall in the season. 20 and 19 by the end of last year, of course, made that round of four at Roland Garros. And you know, third round U.S. Open, and now you look for her here in 2022. Yes, she lost to Raducanu in three sets in Australia to start the year, but now five victories for her from Brenda Fruvertova to the Gavrilovas, Kalinskaya's, and now that three-set win in the final over Marie Buzkova. It's a boost to the start of her year, right? She goes to Guadalajara trying to be a top seed, and she was the number six seed, but get a bunch of matches under her belt before the sunshine swing. She gets exactly that, and now, you know, again, she was number 57. Coming into the week, you look for Sloane Stephens with the title under her belt. She's back into the top 40, up to number 39 in the world. That's indicative of the success she's had at the big events, but now she's getting the results at the little ones to back them up as well. And again, just the physicality she played with. Oh, there was the three-set win over Daria Seville, obviously, uh, uh, formerly Daria Gavrilova, whether it was, you know, just again, yeah, Kalinskaya comes down with an injury in that semifinal, but Stevens just was extending rallies. Then against Buzkova, who plays a physical game style as well and wants to trade, you know, again, 20, 30-shot rallies, it was Stevens who was being patient, but when she got the opportunity to go back in down the line, go inside out with the forehand, injected pace into the rallies. And, you know, again, seven five one six six two was an absolute barn burner. And credit to Marie Buzkova, who you now look with this result. You know, Buzkova's in jeopardy of falling outside the top 100, was number 96 coming into the week. Now back up to number 81 with that result. Gives her a little bit of room for comfort. And you look for Buzkova, 4-1 win over Sribes Tormo, and 3-3 three and three over Chang Wang, and, you know, 
three-set win over Misaki Doi to start the week. That's coming after you know qualifying in Adelaide and winning around there before the Australian Open, winning around at the Australian Open. Absolutely back on track is the 23-year-old from the Czech Republic. But, you know, again, all the credit in the world here to Sloane Stephens, who wore her down physically and, or was able to match that physicality but inject needed pace, you know, again, in the third set when everyone's got tight legs and everyone's fatigued. Really fun tournament uh, in Guadalajara. Always, you know, again, a fun match leading up to Monterey here this week uh, in, in Mexico. But that was a really fun event. And then over uh, in Santiago, of course, for the men, Pedro Martinez, as Portero, a guy whose bandwagon we've been on here for a little bit at Cracked Rackets, simply because from a physicality standpoint, he's got it. The 24-year-old clearly just, you know, has that level of physicality that he can introduce match in, match out, and you know, whether it's the forehand, you know, which the action on it on clay, his ability to hit it on the slide, down the line, cross-court defensively, and then, you know, the variety on the backhand, the slice, the drop shots, the short angles, in particular in this final against Sebastian Baez and against the lefty Alejandro Tabilo in the semifinals, his willingness to drive that ball down the line and swing through that ball and, you know, with depth and pace and then the serve he brings in as well, 6-2, 6-3, guys built not quite like a linebacker, but he's a thicker build. And then he's got that Berrettini fluidity, maybe even a little bit quicker. Great first step. Just a guy's an exceptional athlete and just, you know, again, Baez didn't have the big enough weapons point in, point out in the final to consistently hurt Pedro Martinez, who wins his first ATP title this week in Santiago with four really impressive wins. You know, again, this was a challenger plus sort of event. Thus, it was a 250 and he beats Munar and Hanifman, the big serving Tabilo, who's been so great of lately from Chile, who had the home crowd advantage, let me tell you, and was up a set in, I believe, 3-0 in that semifinal. Or maybe it was Baez who was up a set in 3-0 in the final. But the point being, Martinez scraps and claws. He's a clay quarter through and through, although... Again, with the physicality he plays with, yeah, his court positioning on hard courts is atrocious, but he has the sort of strength and athleticism to get away with his court positioning. But he ultimately earns his first title here. Now you look for him, I believe now, over his last 52 weeks for Pedro Martinez, 24 and 22 at the ATP level and, you know, has made a couple of finals. In Kitzbühel, he makes that final before getting knocked out by Casper Ruud, but beats RBA there, now wins the title here in Santiago. And you look for him, round of 64 last year. U.S. Open round of 64 last year before getting knocked out by Tsitsipas in Roland Garros. Made the third round of Wimbledon before some, you know, beat Monfils before losing in four to, of all people, Christian Green. He's played really good ball in the big results. And again, not a shock to see him have more success at the three out of five set matches, just given the physicality he can introduce there. But you look for him in his ATP level matches, and again, when you break things down by ranking against opponents ranked outside the top 100, he's 9-2 and two in his ATP level matches of late. Against opponents ranked outside the top 50, he's 18-8, and eight. and you look for him against top 50 opponents now, he's 6-14, and 14. but what does that show you? It's a guy who should be right around 50 in the rankings, and wouldn't you know it, with his result, Pedro Martinez, number 50 now in the live rankings, that's a new career high, I would argue, 18-8, and eight against opponents ranked outside the top 50, but given his record of 6-14 and 14 against top 50 opponents, that's right where he belongs. And again, 24 years old, 50 in the world, that's where I think every aspiring pro player would ask to be 
if they're being honest with themselves at that point in their career. First ATP title, well-deserved for a guy who has been so good on the challenger circuit of late and really did work his way up through the ATP rankings. On the flip side, the guy he beat, Sebastian Baez, another productive step forward for the recently, you know, again, turn twenty doesn't turn 22 until this end of December this year. So it is his age 21 season. Pretty good South American clay court stretch. Quarterfinals in Cordoba. Round of 16 in Buenos Aires. Qualified at the 500 in Rio uh, with a couple of three-set wins before, you know, a three-set loss to Diego Montiero. Now makes the final at the 250 in Santiago. You look for Sebastian Baez with this result up to a new career high. Number 62 in the world. And we haven't even hit the meat of the clay court schedule. And yet he's going to be right around top 60 when that meet begins. He's going to get the opportunity at a minimum to get into qualifying in events like Madrid and Barcelona and, you know, Rome and all those big clay court events coming up. He's going to have the opportunity to play all of them over in Europe. Uh, And, you know, again, that's before the French Open points where he will have the opportunity. He should, I mean, all the tennis hipsters, tennis intelligentsia will have Sebastian Baez as a dark horse, depending on his draw at the 2022 French Open. And look, does the backhand still sit up a bit for him in rallies? Yeah, absolutely it does. At the same time, his ability to inject pace into forehands, his quickness, his willingness to move forward. Yeah, the second serve and the serve in general, it's going to be an issue for him against the best of the best on the ATP level. And that's where his size will hamper him. But the quickness he plays with, the explosiveness of his ground strokes, it's a slightly better Ricardus Barrancas. Like from a size perspective, just a little more action, a little less flat, a little more comfortable again, dynamic side to side and, you know, hitting through courts perhaps than Barrancas, particularly clay courts. There's just more action on the Baez ball. He's a really exciting young prospect. And so, again, good run for him in Santiago. Really good stretch here for Alejandro Tabilo, who you look overall now again. What was his South American clay court swing for Tabilo to qualify and make the final in Cordoba? Now, semifinals in Santiago. You look for Alejandro Tabilo. He's making his ATP Top 100 debut this week. Number 98 in the live rankings is the number uh, is the 24-year-old. You're in the ball game. Come the clay court season, the season where he should have the most success, despite playing such an aggressive game. Really nice run for him. You know, for Albert Ramos Vinolas, he does what he does. Cranks out a couple of semifinals and a title, obviously, during this clay court stretch. That's just, this is where Ramos Vinolas makes his bank, folks. This is how he stays in the top 75 and sustains himself a career, and he got to respect it. Uh, so he's got to be feel, feeling good about himself coming out of this month. But it was a really fun week uh, of action. And, you know, I always feel like watch what happens at the challenger level the year before to get a preview of what's going to happen at the ATP level events in the South American clay court stretch uh, the year the year succeeding that and we got that essentially with Martinez titles and Tabilo titles and a Baez final yeah Rio the 500 you get some top 20 and 30 players in the mix like Alcaraz and Schwartzman but it was another fun clay court season for all of us tennis fans down in South America all that said that was uh, your WTN ATP level action over the course of the past week. Now, of course, there was other action happening across levels. If you're looking for an ATP Challenger recap, the Great Shot Podcast is the place for you. College Tennis Recap, Great Shot Podcast, our YouTube channel, the place for you as well. Again, my promise to all of you listeners, we'll get Colette Lewis to talk juniors sometime soon as well as we try to cover all aspects of the tennis world 
Keep all of you Cracked Rackets fans the best educated, most informed fans in the business. Of course, to follow all of our work, all you got to do is go to the website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on any of our content. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in day out making all of this content possible shout out to our friends at tennis point as well tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break and we will talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 